Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Flummer Building. As you'll now be spending your workday here, it is important that you learn a bit about the history of this famous floor. Welcome to Malkovich Malkovich Minute Minute, the daily podcast in which we ineptly attempt to chat up the film Being John Malkovich one minute at a time. I'm your host, Austin Pryor, and about to join me are this week's guests, film director Una Kearney and critic and journalist Peter Crawley. Welcome. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah. That was a very persuasive portal suck. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I, I worried that I hadn't got enough water on board. To, I usually have a slightly, slightly more resonance. No, no. My portal it, suck. No, appeal, appealingly, appealingly moist. It, it felt like there was a Dublin whitewater rafter in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, welcome in. This is our introductions. Una, why don't you go first? Uh, what, what would you like people to know about you? Oh, um, I'm a director of films, I guess, and write, yeah. write them as well. <laughs> and have you, done any, have you done any Marvel movies yet? No, Marvel haven't called yet, even though, you know, you should look <laughs> at my showreel. Like, it's basically, mm. it's superheroes all the way. <laughs> <laughs> I had a chance to look at some of your stuff, uh, your showreels and clips and stuff. I didn't have a chance to, to watch anything longer. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed your Nolignaman Women's Christmas piece for, for our Irish language station here, TG Cahar. I loved that, the weird dance and uh, weird everything. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit surreal. It's good fun, though. I have great fun making that one. Mm. And Peter, what about yourself? Uh, so I'm Peter Crowley. Um, for about 20 years, I've been a critic and journalist for the Irish Times, uh, covering mostly theatre and music and television and film on occasion. Um, uh, in the last kind of couple of years, I've started working uh, more in marketing because um, there's not a lot of work for a theater critic in today's wintry COVID climate. Uh, <laughs> and I've uh, I've made a pivot into um, uh, working with an innovation company. Oh, right. Which is why I use the words made a pivot. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to adopt the lingo. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So they manufacture innovation and uh, distribute it to um, places that don't have enough innovation. They pack it into cardboard boxes <laughs> full of styrofoam peanuts so it doesn't get bruised out of yeah. the factory. And yeah. then it springs up in your face when you unload it in uh, in your home. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I might order a starter kit of innovation. Um, so today we are discussing Minute 16 of Being John Malkovich. Minute 16 starts with Craig picking his moment to use his killer opening line and ends one minute later with Lottie telling us that we're finally getting to the bottom of Elijah's acid stomach. Any any response to this uh, minute in particular? It's a jam-packed minute. It's quite... There's a lot... <laughs> sure there's there's a lot going on in this minute. So we're, we're, we're still in, you know, the first act of being John Malkovich and we're encountering mm-hmm. the significant characters and we're learning about them. Um, and so kind of, and maybe kind of one of the charms of the film is how by degrees it leads you into the widening absurdity of it, but mm-hmm. in what feel like kind of quite plausible steps so that eventually yes. you're so deep into this kind of crazy conceit you you don't quite remember how you got there. So kind of so this is interesting that we, we've already got through the seventh and a half floor and been given, and I think this is sort of where the the fun and the irony of Kaufman, Kaufman's approach is the orientation 
that yeah, to, be, yeah. to be given orientation in what is so fundamentally disorienting the movie is always yeah. like to be kind of nudging at its own conceit. Um, so like the the shock composition of of the first second of that is you know this empty room with all these chairs. It looks to the eye like a chessboard, which kind of it may as well be with these two sort of like opponent figures on it. Um, we know that uh, Craig is um, a disappointed romantic and he's sort of looking for almost anything to pin his hopes and dreams on. And we see in the yet to be revealed or named character of Maxine, this absolutely unattainable woman with, who, mm. with whom he will develop sort of an intense and implausible desire and it will never be requited. And that's kind of announced for in those seconds. She is yeah. she, like, you know, she's she's in this kind of and it's, this is like, you know, when when I, I think she's costumed in a way to recall um, uh, Basic Instinct. She's yes. In this kind of, nice, uh, nice catch. We this, had that uh, white, last yeah. week from from Luke Allen and I hadn't picked up on it at all for all the years I've been watching this movie. And with some photo reference, we were confirmed i mean it pretty much has to be a reference she's it's it's 1999 or or so we think in yeah. in uh in new york city and i still don't think it was permissible to smoke um and read the new yorker in uh orientation <laughs> meetings um yeah uh, things change things change obviously um yeah but the but she radiates the femme fatale thing and yes. the and the sort of the the appealing danger of an unknowable figure Listen, I'm Craig Schwartz. I'm just starting out at Lester Corp. Where are you just starting out? <sighs> to be honest, I think he does very well in terms of what we know about Craig so far to come up with the sort of a reasonably mild and ingratiating line like, where are you just starting out? Um, I, I, I don't know about that. I, I kind of, I give him, I will give him credit in a later minute. This one, I think is, I think this is a weak start. Una, what, what do you think? Um, oh, it's, it's uh, on the line there. I mean, I, I feel it's quite clearly, uh, it feels like, yeah, Kaufman's given him a bit of a, a clangor to sort of, you know, yeah. like, so he's sort of, he's using the same exact words as a means to relate to her. Um, um, but it's, it's, it's funny because I kind of agree with Peter in the sense there's just something so, adorable about John Malkovich's expression when she even just deigns to turn to him. Um, oh, John, because, John Cusack's. Sorry, John Cusack. Yeah. John Cus oh, yeah. God, I hope this won't happen throughout the whole thing. This is going to get very confusing. Um, but, well, it's understandable to have Malkovich on the brain. Malkovich, yeah. Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. So she speaks and says it's it's bullshit, and he's his whole. It's like yeah. Santa appeared in the room. You know, he's he's got this sort of childlike yeah, wonder in his face. He lights up completely. And you you notice the um the little kind of cut on his lip, um yeah. which I think like the little cold sore, and I suppose in this opening frame as well, his physicality, it it really reminded me of sort of your first day at school or your first day at college, yes. and sort of that very full of their own thoughts, like keen to sort of make a connection, um kind of a character. So in a weird way, you know, in terms of um who he is at this point. Because um, I think my view on 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 Cusack's character Craig will change in the next few minutes, mm. but in mm. this particular moment, I'm definitely more with him. So in that sense, mm. he's maybe not doing a great job with Maxine, but he's sort of winning um, my support. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, even though there's a Mrs. Craig at home. Yes, <laughs> that is where we go to next, isn't it? But he um. 
he also goes extremely high pitched on this line. Uh, on the, ah, I'm just starting out. Where are you starting out? And he's like, he seems to be very determined to come across as non-threatening, which I think is like a very wrong-footed move if you're trying to impress Maxine. Mm. It's funny. I read that differently. Mm. I read it that he himself is screwing up his courage to do something. I mean, like even even it's even though it's a micro sort of moment, mm-hmm. what we know about him so far is he's you know almost catatonically depressed. That, yeah. you know, that he's come to do this thing rather by instruction, which is go for the job and get it. The kind of the, the, the fact that he's got the gumption to even get there. So I think kind of the fact that he screws his courage to the corny line is mm-hmm. the beginning of him actually finding some spark to life again. Yeah. It's, it's, it's betrayal, you know, like it's, yes. it's, to, it's to set mm-hmm. up kind of like a really sort of compromising and unpleasant position. But it's actually, it's all about, it, and it's marked, it's desire, just as she is marked by the costume yes. and the pose and the actions, you know? So now he's now he's a, a person who's been reinvested with desire. And like, you know, sure, it comes out a bit strangulated and high-pitched, but the fact mm-hmm. that he's doing it is actually like, you know, there's a fulcrum where he's about to tip over into a bit of agency. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of his... It's his catalyst into into action, and he has been in the driver's seat of his life very much, ex- except for in his little puppet theater, in his in his realm of mastery. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We all have our little areas where we're totally in control, and that's what he leans on. And in the rest of his life, I think he's uh, he he doesn't have that mastery. He doesn't he doesn't feel like he's in the driver's seat of his life. And this is his very destructive, very you know. Not cool, but almost roundabout admirable that he's kind of breaking the cycle and kind of going for it. Yeah, and and specifically for somebody who will not return the ball. Somebody who's like, who's absolutely (laughs) complete. And and I think Maxine, kind of all the characters, probably changes the least throughout the film. Yes, Um, yeah, yeah. To the point that you can say, is it is it problematic about her character, or is she is she a cipher, or is is does she know herself better than anybody else? But kind of if Craig, you, you talk about his place of mastery, and yet he is never accepted. He he finds no adulation yes. on this on the street yeah. or at home. Um, mm-hmm. He's and why? Because he asks questions. Um, <laughs> hey, here he just asked another one, and he was shot down. So his thesis has been proved. She's she's reading the New Yorker from February the ninth, nineteen ninety eight. I l- I was able to look it up and get a look at the archive, and I'm afraid I couldn't tell exactly what uh, what article she was reading. Um, Judging by her complete lack of amusement, probably the cartoons. Yeah, nice. Oh. <laughs> yeah, what's the matter, New Yorker? Too real for you? Take that, New Yorker! Shots fired. Um. I also checked that particular issue of The New Yorker to see if there were any Susan Orlean pieces in it, which uh. unfortunately there weren't. <laughs> um, but it is an interesting little connection going through it minute by minute. I'm seeing connections mm. to uh, adaptation and it's going to be fun to go into adaptation if this podcast doesn't kill me. <laughs> Moving story, huh? Unfortunately, the story is bullshit. I have here the uh, first draft of the screenplay and this is how it was from the start but it goes a bit longer in the first draft so 
the the line is you know moving story and then maxine says yes unfortunately it's bullshit the real story of seven and a half is so evil that it could never be revealed to americans raised on sitcoms and happy news anchors oh my god what a great edit good good editor yeah good edit yeah Yeah. like it's it's definitely i think it's definitely better without it because it's the maxine in the movie is low effort and this is kind of working too hard yeah and then Craig says, is that true? And Maxine says, well, truth is for suckers, isn't it? Which is uh, a call forward to the uh, truth is for suckers, Johnny boy, later on when, when it's uh, said by uh, Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Uh, and I okay. think that was in this script as well. So it was just a kind of a, a link there. Oh, this is interesting. Mm. Yeah, so then it goes on. Uh, so Craig <laughs> says, listen, I'm Craig Schwartz, just starting out at Lester Corp. Then Maxine just says, how dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog, to tell one's name, the live long June, to an admiring bog. And uh, if you were paying very close attention, you will know, (laughs) and I only know because I've researched Mm -hmm. the hell out of this, that that was the very part of the Emily Dickinson poem that uh, was on the news where the 60-foot Emily Dickinson puppet mm-hmm. um, was performing the Bell of Amherst w- w- under the direction of Derek Mantini, the great Mantini. The great Mantini. So, <laughs> Gimmicky bastard. So then Craig says, uh, Emily Dickinson, proudly. And then Maxine just says, I wouldn't know, and walks away. Um, ah, so okay. So disavowing, yeah. It's... It's. Mm. I'm really glad they took that stuff out. I think we're meant to take it that Maxine saw the same thing on the news, and learned it, and but didn't know. I mean, she says I wouldn't know. Yeah, it's no. It's very hard to know how she could know the quote so perfectly, and not know that it was Emily Dickinson. Well, mm. it makes her. It makes her much more of a cipher for the author if yes. she does. Yeah. With like, like then she just becomes a mouthpiece for Kaufman, which is Definitely. which is really interesting because I think we would find it a lot less interesting, a lot less stimulating if that's yeah. how it was. But it's eventually in enough of what he does in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, where the character is considerably less an independent character and much more. Which I haven't gotten to yet. Well, I better worry. because don't, everybody's no, because gonna... you can't make a minute by minute podcast about it without <laughs> I, I think tearing every hair out of its follicle. Uh, <laughs> but no, but no spoilers. But is but is but it's much more a sense of you know somebody who is inhabited by the material or is rather a conductor yes. for the material. Yeah, and I think like uh, Kaufman always kind of skates that edge, and it looks like cooler heads prevailed Mm. here because there are other examples of that throughout the script where people get to be basically gives more work for the actors and less work for the for the screenplay and um and with Catherine keener just pulling this off so effortlessly and she wasn't she wasn't looking forward to playing that the role necessarily very much in the start she really had to be convinced Mm. um she didn't know she was right for it and then got very into it. But she, mm. yeah, she pulls off this effortless vibe. And I would just, I, I, I can't picture our Maxine delivering some of these lines. And I'm really glad they, uh, they made that change. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's super interesting because it makes her, 
um, I mean, it really fundamentally changes her character, those cuts. You know, she's mm. someone who from the get-go is engaging and literary, whereas, you know, she may or may not be literary. She's Maxine. She's sort of beyond. Yeah. And, you know, because it's interesting because I, I, I think when you talked about her character and, you know, whether she's a cipher and she's sort of... Um, this this stuff that Peter was talking about control and stuff like in a way the question I suppose with her is like why you know why does she do this and sort of that's where there's sort of yeah. a kind of an interesting correlation with the the little person in the film because it, you know in a way um, that story why I think it does uh, why it is funny is because it starts and you're a little bit nervous because you know it's 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 sort of um drawing the fact that she is um, at that time apparently now not going to be able to find anyone and then this man the rescuer comes in and is going to build her this this story yes, yeah. um, and <laughs> and uh, this seven and a half foot story so it's sort of in a way um, there is a sort of um, a dependence on the, uh, the, the, the the willing and kindness of a master or of a provider in some sense and sort of yeah. Maxine is wanting to sort of set herself um, outside of that and, and in that way that's why I'm so fascinated by the script versus her sort of um, much more oblique presence um, you know with far less words in the film because you, you can talk to the power of silence and sort of what isn't said and what is implied and and that does confer power I think on the non-speaker mm. like well silence is interesting that way it, it can mm. you know it can be a, it can be a representation of, of oppression and not being able to speak but it can also as we know uh, do the opposite and I think she absolutely uh, does that and 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 in the lines that she has, she kind of gets a lot of the the sharpest lines. You know, they're 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 great. Yes. And and what we're learning is that like they were great, but they were couched in all this other stuff. And 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 I mean, it just speaks to the collaborative power of film because those lines are gold, but they only work because they gave them space. Yep, you bet. Um, she does say in the script that you know the real story of seven and a half is so evil that it can't be blah, blah. so it's very much intended in the first draft that she does know something more about the real story of seven and a half but i think it's a thread that's just dropped because later as the portal comes into play and as we learn more about Captain Merton and all that, Maxine's knowledge never comes back into it. So just from a kind of a mm. plot mm -hmm. mechanics point of view, it, it works better that they left it out as well. Um, and there is that slight, you know, it's like all of these little plants, you know, um, so that payoff of the Emily Dickinson. So that's what we lose. Like when I saw that later, yeah. I made no connection as you as you couldn't because the lines are gone. And even if the lines had been there, possibly wouldn't have recognized them. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so in some ways, again, a judicious cut, because actually mm -hmm. does that scene with the big Emily, it, to me, it doesn't matter whether it's Emily Dickinson or anyone else. It's, it's the scale of it. <laughs> it's the stature yeah, yeah. of it, you know, um, so, but it's really interesting because it's, I think it's, I think she's a completely different character with those lines cut out. Yeah, yeah. Do you agree, Peter? Well, I think kind of for the same reasons, I think her character is lessened with the lines so that she becomes mm. less a character and much more of a, a kind of device. 
So I, yeah. so, so, um, I, so again, I think it's a really good cut. I think also in terms of Kaufman and his sort of whole filmography, um, you can be too clever, which is to say you can set up all of these particular kind of, you know, plant and payoffs so that it becomes hermetically sealed. And it kind of, yeah. and you know, we could do, we could do a, a somehow even longer podcast about the movie that they might have made in which mm. the, all of those things become joined up, you know, perfect little circles and symmetrical. Yeah. And again, it would be a less interesting film because it's like a film that will have solved itself. And all you can really do is sit back and admire. So it's, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's some, a little some clockwork of, Some of the exercise. mysteries have to endure. Some of, yeah. some of the things need to go nowhere and some of the riddles need to remain unsolved, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and what's interesting is wondering, like, that's the architecture or that's the, the archaeology behind the film. And, you know, I, I sort of it is interesting to think like consciously um, it changes how I, I think about the film in a little way, because it's sort of knowing that there's been all these elisions um you know, we'll, we'll probably get to that, but there are there are sorts of things that don't add up, as we as we all know in in the film, where there's lots of questions that remain um, unanswered. But I mean, it, you mm. know, and I would agree, like she is she isn't a fleshed out real character. But then I guess, like, to what degree are any of them? You know, and in some ways, she's sort of the opposite of Lottie. Like Lottie is wearing all these muted, coloured jumpers. Her hair is crazy, yeah. and she kind of we're introduced to her. Well, I guess we're we're, we're jumping into the next ten seconds now but we're introduced to her as sort of a running background monologue um which is you know the absolute opposite of keener who waits and then you know has this great line Yeah, that's adorable. For years, I didn't know this this line, and it's called back to later, which is, uh, help, she's locking me in a cage. Lottie has taught the parrot to say, help, she's locking me in a cage. And then she says, isn't that cute? I just taught her that yesterday. And so then it's called back to later when Lottie, the gag is that Lottie can't call for help Mm -hmm. because when she shouts to the neighbors who can hear her, she says, help, she's locking me in a cage. But they they just think it's the Paris. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I don't know if the gag quite lands, but I love that it's there. Uh, You know, it's it's in there kind of woven in. But I didn't I didn't catch it for years. And and I certainly didn't catch it. But also in in the second part part of that that story, it's a brilliant payoff had we caught it. But in the first half, it doesn't really make sense for Lottie's character unless like secretly she's writing poetry at night and hates her life and teaches the parrot to say this because we feel like the apartment is more a reflection of Lottie than Craig, maybe. Um, And so in some weird way... um, you know, it's it's Craig hasn't self-realized within this relationship yes. either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably why that scene works so well, I think, because, you know, we see him go, it's, 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 you know, you can read that in a sort of negative way towards Craig because he, you know, we've just seen him sort of like his eyes become, you know, widened by, by meeting Maxine and now he's at home going, yeah, so adorable. And he's so not engaging with her. And like they have this very cursory kiss. But at, mm-hmm. at the same time, the world that we've been introduced to, as, as Peter described it there, is much more Lottie, isn't it? I mean, or is it a bit Definitely. of Craig? But we, when I think about it, um, what do we know about Craig on his own? It's that puppet box on the street. And there's something shot, quite yeah. romantic about it. It's, mm. it's all about 
kind of love yearned for and stuff. So I don't think well, that yeah. kitchen is romantic. <clears throat> no, not at the all. The lighting isn't romantic. You know, no. No, and it, it's these harsh, exposed <laughs> bulbs. You know, and, and yeah, I think it, and yeah. it, it casts these dark shadows. You know, it actually got it like that scene reads so dark. It reads so drab. You see, you see <laughs> that there's so little, so little promise and potential in it. But, um, but isn't interesting in what you say about um, Craig's romanticism? That kind of like that his depiction of uh, Eloise and Abelard is again it's essentially this idea of unrequited or unfulfilled it's all yeah. it's all want and longing but not genuine reciprocation that there's a barrier between the two um, which is all about that that medieval tradition of romance is right entirely based on on that idea of on yeah on the kind of courtly love, love was, idea yeah yeah and love was put up on, on a pedestal as an unrealized thing and but it so was, it's still, it's if it was realized thing. it was dirty it's the wanting mm. that matters mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to the getting, the having. So, mm. and then, and here we have it in this, you know, minute, we have Craig wanting what he can't have. Uh, mm. Maxine, um, not wanting what she so easily can have. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Lottie, uh, not knowing what it is that she wants. Ooh. And on that, on that bombshell, I, I get the feeling I won't be able to hold on to you too much longer. I'm, I'm going to lose you from the portal, so I'm afraid you're going to be dumped out into uh, a ditch on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike. But can you come back tomorrow? Absolutely. Great. Yeah, see you then. Look forward to it. Good stuff. 